If you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Remember, if you have no idea where 1 Peter is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents as you're going to be there. Open up to 1 Peter this morning, and we're going to look at a few verses as we continue on in our study through the fruit of the Spirit. And so you'll see Hebrews, James, you'll get into 1 Peter. If you get to 1 John, you've gone too far. 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning as we consider the fruit of the Spirit, joy. <clears throat> the big idea for this series, as we think about it, I'll remind you of every, every single week for the next few weeks, as we consider the fruit of the Spirit, the big idea is this. The fruit of the Spirit are a gift of God's grace because He loves us, not a checklist to work through so that He will love us. These are like seeds that have been planted in our heart by the Holy Spirit. And we trust that God is, God is at work shaping us and changing us. And we pray and we ask the Lord to give us, please Lord, give us and work into my own heart more love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those wonderful fruits of the Spirit. As we ask the Lord, please change me by your grace, O Father. Help me through this process of sanctification become more like Jesus and help me to respond with a thankful and grateful heart for all that you have done. And so as we consider this fruit of the Spirit joy this morning, as you're opening up to 1 Peter chapter 1, back in January of 2019, Netflix premiered an eight-episode series that kind of just sent a buzz through houses around the world. And they followed up again just a few years later with another three-episode series. And after watching this show, plenty of tense discussions between family members occurred. And almost all of those who watched this show responded by throwing, by throwing something away. And you might be, what in the world is he talking about? But instead of throwing stuff away in protest, you know, you've had where I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to video me throwing it out in protest. Instead of throwing stuff away in protest, they threw stuff away in pursuit of joy, quote unquote. I'm talking about the series Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, and she was the author of a best-selling book. And her five-step plan centers around the idea of designing your life to, quote unquote, spark joy, and she is an expert in decluttering homes. That's kind of the Marie Kondo method. You may have watched that. And here, um, here is what Marie Kondo says to spark joy, especially as we're decluttering homes. She says, the best way to choose what to keep and what to throw away is to take each item in one's hand and ask, does this spark joy? If it does, keep it. If not, dispose of it. This is not only the simplest, but also the most accurate yardstick by which to judge. I have to admit, I have never personally held up a pair of socks and asked, does this spark joy in my life? I've never done that. Um, but, but millions of people have done that. Millions of people have responded this way, holding up a shirt and going, does this spark joy in my life? And the interesting thing when we think about Marie Kondo, and it was really was a global phenomenon that swept through and continues to, the global phenomenon of Marie Kondo is interesting to follow because I think she, she tapped into a question that we all instinctively ask at the heart level, and that question is this, where can I find true joy? Where does it come from? How does that look? How do, how do I tap into that somehow? I think the reason that she has become so well-known in our world is because she's, she's tapping into that question. Where do I find true joy? You may have asked that. 
Now, we typically seek joy by chasing after stuff from the world around us, don't we? We vacations, buying stuff, a good cup of coffee, even organizing your house. None of these things are bad on their own. Please hear me when I say that. None of these things are bad on their own, but they can never bring lasting joy at the heart level. So example, I love to go fly fishing in the mountains. It's a thing that I really enjoy doing. It always brings me joy in the moment. As I've, I've always said, trout do not hide in ugly places. And I'm standing waist deep in a river, and I'm, and I'm fly fishing and just enjoy God's creation. And that brings me joy, but oh, it's fleeting. Because it only lasts until I lose another fly in the trees. My waders start leaking, and that fish breaks my line, and I get mad. I realize that that joy is fleeting because why? My heart made the trip too. My heart made the trip as well. And so in these moments, we quickly find out that we can't con Marie our own hearts and no, matter of co no amount of coffee stuff or mountain air can truly fix it on its own. And I'm not against Marie Kondo, please hear me when I say that, but the international appeal of her profession is just a symptom of a deeper heart problem we all share which is a lack of joy in our own failed attempts to try to bring it into our lives somehow. Here's what Kondo promises, which I thought was really interesting. She said, if you tidy properly, you will become thinner and your skin will clear up, she writes. You will be spiritually fulfilled and develop good fortune. You will face your anxieties about the past and the future and learn what it is that you really want from life and at last your real life will begin. Tidying, after all, is magic. It will open up your life to true joy. Who knew that folding my shirts in such a way would bring joy like that into my life? That, you know, I will get skinnier and my skin will clear up and my life will somehow be better. I had no idea. Maybe I will hold up my pair of socks and say, does this spark joy? But probably not. We hear that quote and we think, yeah, right. Because we live in the real world, don't we? And we know that just as soon as things get tidy, they'll get untidy almost immediately, and that joy will dissipate. You know, we'll fold our shirts just right, but then we still have to have something to wear, so we've got to pull them out, and we mess up this beautiful thing that we've done, and then all of a sudden we're kind of back to where we were. But what if real lasting joy at the heart level actually comes from focusing on something outside of ourselves? What if that joy is something that we can't control, we can't buy it, we can't earn it, and we can't organize our way into it. What if real lasting heart joy came from somewhere else? Would you like to hear where that comes and how that happens? If so, i got some good news for you. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through 9, and let's discover where true joy actually comes from this morning. <clears throat> I'll give you a hint. It's not in the stuff. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for these words that you have preserved and kept for us and these wonderful reminders of the gospel. We pray this morning as we consider your word that you would, O Lord, help us to see and make much of Christ. Redescribe reality to us, O Lord, and help us to receive your word by faith. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. As we consider this text this morning, I want you to Go in the Wayback Machine, and I want you to imagine, if you can, put yourself under the tyrannical reign of Emperor Nero. Think about you know, all the stories that you may have heard about the, just the tyrants of these Roman emperors in their heyday. Put yourself under the reign of Emperor Nero. Tales of his cruel, cruelty have endured for almost 2,000 years. And imagine living in the city of Rome as a Christian at the height of his reign. Now imagine that you are the Apostle Peter, who dictated this very letter to Silvanus from Rome around 62 AD at the height of Nero's reign. Nero would later blame the great fire in Rome of AD 64 on Christians, and many were subsequently put to death by being scapegoats of this. Various early accounts say that Peter died a martyr's death as a result of Nero's blame, when he was in his early to mid-60s, that Peter was blamed for this. He was in his early 60s, and Nero blamed Christians at large, and Peter died as a result of being scapegoated by Nero. And Before his death, Peter wrote this letter, as we see in his little opening here in verse 1 and 2. Peter wrote this letter to elect exiles scattered throughout the Roman Empire to encourage these Christians to endure real suffering and persecution. And he also called them to, quote, rejoice with joy in verse 8. And the Greek word there that he used is kara, C-H-A-R-A, which is translated joy, which is our second fruit of the Spirit that we see. But did you notice what he called them to rejoice in? He called them to rejoice in the gospel, even in the midst of crushing circumstances, even in the midst of being seen as social outcast, even in the midst of that, Peter called them to joy. And so the big question then becomes is, how does the gospel lead us to joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances? So it's a great question. How does the gospel lead us into joy? Two ways this morning if you're a note-taking type of person. Number one, we're going to see that the gospel reminds us of the gift of a new faith. The gift of a new faith. Secondly, the gospel reminds us of the gift of a new future. A new faith and a new future because of Christ. So let's look at that first point. The gospel reminds us of the gift of a new faith. Peter begins with a word of praise for God in verse 3. He says, uh, look at what he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that word blessed is the Greek word eulogetos, where we get the word eulogy from, which is to speak a good word about. And so he uses this word, to we're going to speak a good word about the Lord. And so, and so Paul and Peter speaks well of God the Father because he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And here's what Bill Harrell said. He said, The blessedness of God is seen in his creation of a world and of mankind that were very good. However, the full measure of God's blessedness is gloriously manifested in the saving of sinners by the Son of God. And so you see, Peter starts off, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look to Christ. And notice the divine motive of God in sending His Son. It said, according to His great mercy. Notice what is not included in the divine motive. Your own religious record, your own righteousness, your works, your efforts, your decisions. Notice what is gloriously absent from that. Because of his great mercy, he sent his son Jesus. Not because of anything that we had done. Notice the results of this divine motive through the work of Christ. Where he says, he has caused us to be born again. To a living hope. The Greek verb Peter used here is very unique. Born again. He has caused us to be born again. And this Greek word is very unique in, this, in the New Testament. And what it points to is a divine rebirth or regeneration. It's a very specific word. And even that is a gift of grace. And so if you are a Christian, what this verse is telling you in verse 3, I mean, think about the promises here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, not anything that we have done, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about the amazing truth claims that are right there, and we're one verse in. The amazing, uh, just the gospel being placed in front of us this morning. If you are a Christian, what this verse reminds you of is that the only reason you are a Christian is because God gave you new life first, period, full stop. The reason you are here as a Christian is because God chose to set his love upon you and do whatever it took to draw you from darkness into light. It's a a marvelous work of God's grace, a marvelous work of his sovereignty, It may felt like you chose him, but only because he chose to set his electing love upon you first, and he caused you to be born again. You did not birth yourself. He caused you to be born again while you were dead in your sin and trespasses. It is amazing grace when you think about it. Jesus himself told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and remember, born again from above, He cannot see the kingdom of God. It takes a work of God's free grace, this monergistic work from God to us, not synergistic where we cooperate. It is God's work of regeneration, which is a gift of divine grace. It's amazing when you think about it. Don't believe me? Okay. Here's what John MacArthur said. He said, there are no steps to be born again. Praise God. Nowhere does Jesus tell Nicodemus, do this, say this, pray this. Nowhere does he tell him how to be born from above, how to be born again. Yes, it says a man must be born again. And in verse 8, he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. But that is not a command, that is a statement of fact. God's kingdom is only for people who have been given God's life. You can't live in this kingdom unless you are a partaker of the divine nature, unless you are a new creation. He says, and the analogy is so simple and so basic that it can hardly be misunderstood. The analogy is birth, and everybody gets that. You don't participate in your own birth. 
There are no books out there to say how to be born physically. You don't have anything to do with that. And there's the reason our Lord uses this analogy. As you play no role in your physical birth, you play no role in your spiritual birth. That's the point of the analogy. Jesus saying the kingdom only opens to people who know it's 100% a divine miracle and who forfeit all efforts to participate. Gospel. Gospel. <laughs> Amen indeed. Aren't you glad that God drew you while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, gave you a new life, pointed you towards Christ. All of it is a work of divine grace. All of it is a work of divine mercy. That's why we are constantly reminded over and over again in the New Testament that we do not boast in ourselves. Our boasting is in Christ and Christ alone. Do you notice the songs that we sing and all of the things that we point to, especially on a Sunday morning? It's not about you. It points to the glorious nature of Christ, the sovereignty of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. It all points to Him. And we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this grace. It's amazing to me as we consider the work of the Spirit and the Scripture, and we're reminded over and over again. I continue to be amazed at how many people continue to deny or grumble against what is an absolute picture of God's grace and mercy towards sinners like you and me. That's clearly taught in Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. This work of divine grace. I am amazed. What do we have to grumble against other than our own sin? That's what we should grumble against. Oh, Lord, I'm so wicked in front of you. But yet, Lord, you're so gracious and kind. It's an amazing work of grace. That's what makes grace amazing. That's what makes the gospel good news is that He came and rescued you in the midst of your spiritual death, and He brought you to life. It is the amazing gospel. When that gets in your bones, you will never sing that old hymn the same way again. Because you, you will be able to really believe at the heart level, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And it was the Lord who sought you out. That is what makes grace amazing. It's not kind of amazing. It's unbelievably amazing when we realize our position before a holy God. And I know, as we're thinking, you know, the spiritually dead are made alive. The lost have been sought. They've been found. The deaf are made to hear. The blind are made to see. All of this is by undeserved merit and grace. That's what we see here. And you might be thinking, yeah, Dave, but. Yeah, Dave, but what about this? But what about that? I hear you. But let me put this before you. When you think about that word, but, B-U-T, there's really only one category of that word that really matters. And those are the ones that come from the Lord himself. And so let me lay before you two passages that start with that little word, but. And let me lay this in front of you. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. And we say, thank you, Jesus. You want to hear another one? Romans 5, 8 to 11. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That answers our objections right then. We say, yeah, but Dave, what? Uh uh. But God, being rich in mercy. See, the flow of redemption is always from God to man. On them who have wandered around in darkness, on them, from heaven, from God himself, on them a light has shone. It's amazing when you think about it. See, we give ourselves way too much credit. And we think that somehow we were lovely and that we were lovable. But we forget what the scripture tells us from beginning to end. We're not lovely in and of ourselves. And I know you don't like hearing that. I don't like hearing that. But that's what the Bible clearly teaches us, and that's what makes the gospel good news, that God has set his love upon those who are unlovely. And we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. The sheer mercy and grace behind us being, look at what it says, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That should take our breath away. We should go, (gasps) and the real question is, Lord, why me? Why me, O Lord? Why would you ever choose to show your grace to me? It should lead us to rejoice. And so the definition of the fruit of the Spirit for joy is this. And here Tim Keller offered a really helpful definition. He said, delight in God and his salvation for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. We rejoice in God for all that he has done. Biblical joy is not just limited to a feeling. What it is, is it is delighting and rejoicing in who God is and what he accomplished for his people. If you want something that will, in Marie Kondo's words, spark joy in your heart, it's that. We look to God and all that he has done. We remember Christ and what he did for us. That in and of itself, as we stare at the reality of the cross, we say, thank you, Lord, and our hearts rejoice in who he is. Christians should be the most joyful people on the planet, but aren't we often the most grumpy? Christians should be, if this is really true, if the gospel's true, we should be the most joyful people on the planet, but sadly, we are often the most grumpy. Why? Because we can't loosen our grip on control and trust ourselves fully to a good and sovereign God. And so in the background, we're always thinking, yeah, but, and we look to joy and we look to fulfillment from the world around us, do we not? Even in the midst of that, we doubt his promises, and we look to ourselves, or we put our faith in the things of the world. So do you want more joy in life? You want more joy? Here it is. Look to Christ. Set your gaze upon him Rejoice in his beauty, not your own. Peter calls us to do that, does he not? Look at verses 8 and 9. Look at what Peter asks us to do. So in light of this great promise of verse 3, what does he ask us to do in verse 8 and 9? Though you you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. There's our word. With joy, there it is again. That is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What does Peter ask us to do? Look to Christ. Focus on Christ. Set your gaze upon Christ. Think about what he has done. If you are in Christ, don't you find your heart aching sometimes to see him? You ever said, oh Jesus, I just want to see you. Lord, please come. 
Lord, please reveal yourself. Don't you find yourself kind of leaning into that? Don't you find yourself longing to be finally free from the crippling effects of life in a fallen world? Lord, I see this sin in my own heart. I see the anger in my heart. I see the impatience in my heart. I see the brokenness of the world around me. And don't you just find yourself longing to see that be done away with? Don't you just long, Lord, please? It's that heartache at the, at the spirit level. And this is a Holy Spirit reminder of where true joy's, joy lies. It lies in God himself. Think about this. All three members of the Trinity, fully engaged and active in saving and securing lost sheep like us who were loved before the foundation of the world. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Fully engaged, fully at work to bring this work of redemption about. All of it undeserved, all of it unmerited, by sheer grace alone. And we say, Lord, thank you. C.S. Lewis wrote, joy is the serious business of heaven. Isn't that a good quote? Joy is the serious business of heaven. These unshakable gospel truths would be enough for us to dwell upon for a thousand years. And some of you are thinking, are we going to be here for a thousand years? I promise we're not. That was a joke. But there's even more. If true joy is found in God himself, how does this give us hope when life gets hard? That's the big question, right? Okay, so we focus on Christ, but life's still hard. So what do I do with that? That's our second point that's very quick. The gospel reminds us of the gift of a new future. And so it's not just the gift of a new faith that has been given, as we have been born again to a living hope through Jesus. As if that wasn't amazing enough. There's even more. It's the gift of a new future. The Apostle Paul, while chained to a wall in a Roman prison facing execution, he knew it was coming. He wrote in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We looked at the letter to Philippians on Wednesday night, and he's saying, you know, all this stuff that's happened to me, it's really been for the good. And you think, what is the stuff that happened to Paul? Shipwrecked, stoned, beaten within an inch of his life, thrown in jail. You know, you think, and he's like, man, all of this has been great because it's led me to this point where I can continue to share the gospel even in the jail cell. All of it has been. And you're like, how in the world could a guy write that? And write this, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, chained to a wall in a stinking Roman prison. What could possibly do that? Why would, what would allow him to believe something like that under such circumstances? Look at verse 4, 4, 5, and 6. Look at what Peter said. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What a hope. What a promise that's laid there. He says, you, this thing has been kept up for you. It is an inheritance that is absolutely unassailable. It can't be stolen it can't be taken, it can't be hidden, it is kept in heaven for you. And who guards it? The Lord himself, guarded and kept for you who are in Christ. That's amazing news. When you think about it, doesn't the world look very worn down and rusty when you place it next to the picture that we get of heaven's perfection? For all the things that we look to in this world to finally bring us joy, and we always ask, will this be the thing? Will it be the promotion? Will it be the raise? Will it be straight A's? Will it be whatever? Fill in the blank. 
We constantly think, is this the thing that's finally going to bring me joy at the heart level? Is it a trophy? Is it losing a certain amount of weight? Whatever it is, we're always saying, will this be the thing, finally, that will help me find joy? And I think what we are constantly reminded of is all of those things fall short of the mark, do they not? Because as soon as we get that thing, what happens to our hearts? We go looking for joy again. What can really fulfill us at the heart level? When we look at the world, it looks very worn down and rusty when we place it next to the picture we get in heaven. And here is that picture from Revelation 21, 18 to 23. The wall was built of jasper. You are being shown here that, Im that imperishable, unfading thing that Peter's talking about. Here's a picture. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass, and the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city was of no need of sun or moon or shine, to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You think about that? And doesn't the world look just worn down and rusty and beaten up when compared to the, to the hope of heaven? I hope it does. And we find leaning, our, leaning into that. Lord, give me that. And he says, if you were in Christ, that is your inheritance. But it's not just the pretty city. What makes heaven heaven? It's the presence of God. It's Jesus dwelling at the center of the city. And his holiness is so bright, there's no need of sun or moon. It's the light of Jesus himself. And there's no scary dark places, are they not? Every single corner, every bit of it is illuminated by the light of the Lamb. And isn't that where the lamb, the light is lifted up nice and high? You remember what we do on Christmas Eve? We all light candles and we hold them right here. And we sing Silent Night. And then what do we do? We raise those candles up and the light spreads, does it not? We think about the hope of heaven. In the center of it is Jesus himself described as the lamp. And the glory of his holiness illumines every bit of what he has made. And it is a safe place. A place that will not wear down. A place where no one will get in to harm us ever again. A place of safety. A place of kindness. A place of goodness. And a place of joy because of what Christ has done. It's amazing when you think about it. And the only reason that our hearts are pulled so strongly towards this future is because the Holy Spirit gave us eyes to see it by the grace of regeneration, this new birth that Peter talks about. Before the cross of Christ, our future was one of a lawbreaker, was it not? Under the wrath of a holy God and bound for a well-deserved hell. But because of Christ, our future is secure through the one who kept the law of God for us, but was treated as a lawbreaker in our place. He endured the wrath of God so that we could be redeemed by his blood. And you think about the great promise of the gospel that's laid before you, and what else could you possibly look to in this world for joy that would rival what Christ has already accomplished in the cross? So the call is this, look to Christ, look to Jesus. I told you I throw the same fastball every week, do I not? Look to Christ, look to Christ, look to Christ. And even in the midst of this, we want to even use the fruit of the Spirit and say, well, we look to ourselves first. 
And we somehow work these fruit up in our heart, and then we bring it to God and say, have I done it enough? And if that's the way salvation works, we might as well pack it up and go home. Because can you ever bring enough joy that would ever counteract or make up for what Christ has accomplished on the cross? No way! And so if that's the way this whole, that's, if that's the whole way this thing works, let's go home. But it's Christ, is it not? We look to Christ. We continue to look at Christ. This is why Christ, this is why Christians can face trials and difficult circumstances with great joy. You're like, how's that work? Because they've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And they've been given a Savior who cannot fail. That's why we sing, Thy mercy, my God, is a theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. This is what has allowed Christians to sing through centuries of war and persecution and martyrdom and shame and brokenness and ridicule and plagues and poverty, even in the midst of the good times. What has allowed Christians to sing? This is what the Christian's joy and hope rests in. It says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. That's it. It's, that's it. What has allowed us as Christians to sing through fierce persecution, horrible, difficult circumstances that might even be present right now, what allows Christians to sing through that? It's not any joy that we've manifested in our own hearts it's us focusing on Christ and all that He's done for us and saying, thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your mercy. You want an illustration of what this looks like? I hope so, because I'm about to give you one. Okay? We're going to close with this. Let me give you an illustration of what this looks like. John Newton, guy you may have heard his name. He lived in the 1700s. He was the former captain of a slave ship who turned into a pastor after his conversion at age 23. He's probably best known for writing that hymn, Amazing Grace. And there's been a quote that's been attributed to him. I realize that I am a great sinner, but he is a great savior. Mostly we know John Newton for that. And rightfully so. Amazing picture of God's grace. Well, after two years, about two years after his conversion, Newton married the girl he had fallen, fallen for in his teens, and her name was Polly. And they had a loving marriage that lasted 40 years, and, and Newton would go on and write letters about her. Oh, I love her so much. And you know, they, for all in, for everything we've seen, they had a beautiful, wonderful marriage for 40 years until Polly, after a battle with cancer, died. And Newton stood by her bedside holding a candle as she breathed her last and when Newton insisted on preaching his wife's funeral, a few objections were raised. And you can probably think of these objections. It seemed insensitive to some that a husband would speak so soon after his wife's death. Others feared that it would be too much for Newton and that he would break down during the sermon. And as Newton began, that's exactly what appeared to be happening. Could you imagine preaching your own spouse's funeral? As Thomas Dibden wrote many years after the funeral, reflecting upon what he saw, here's what he wrote. I remember when a lad of about 15 being taken by my uncle to hear the well-known Mr. Newton preach his wife's funeral sermon. Newton was then well stricken in years with a, with a tremulous voice. He began at first feebly and leisurely, but as he warmed, his ideas and words seemed mutually to enlarge. 
The tears trickled down his cheeks, and his action and expression were at times quite out of the ordinary course of things. To this day, I have not forgotten his text, Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Newton, preaching the funeral of his own wife, being struck by the goodness and mercy of God, because he was not rejoicing in the circumstance that was there, that was very tough, was it not? Saying, even in the midst of that, I will rejoice in God, my Savior, because he's good. Because his heart is kind. Look again at 1 Peter 3 through 4. Look at verses 3 and 4 as we close and dwell upon this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So what? Why should you care? Don't look to joy from the world around you. It will fail you. Don't look to joy from your own heart. Your own heart will fail you. Look to joy in Christ and all that Christ has done. Look to the good heart of God the Father who sent His Son into the world to rescue and redeem you when you were at your most unlovable while you were his enemies, Christ died for you. Look to this new faith that has been given to you as a gift by grace. Look to this new future that has been given to you by grace. Look how it is kept safe until the end by grace. And to that we look to Christ and say, Amen. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ and that is why we continue to look to Christ. We rest in Christ. We trust in Christ. We look to joy for Christ. We say, Lord, give us more joy. But not this just feeling that you well up in our hearts. Give us true biblical joy as we look and we stare at you and we dwell upon your loveliness. As we dwell upon your grace. As we dwell upon your mercy. And to that we say, not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. And doesn't that change the way we think about joy? It's not a thing that we gin up in and of ourselves. It's something that we look to Christ and we rejoice in God and all that he has done. That's where true joy is found. And that joy will never disappoint because it is grounded in the unchangeable nature and promises and covenant love of an unchanging God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Rejoice in the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father, as we consider and we come to you and we think about this, where true joy is found, Lord, please forgive us for all the ways that we have been looking to joy through things of the world, we have been looking to find it in and of our own selves, and we are quickly reminded that that joy is fleeting. Help us to rejoice in you, O Lord. Rejoice in who you are. Rejoice in your kindness and your goodness and your mercy. Rejoice in your great love. Rejoice in the cross. 
And as we stare upon the cross and as we consider all that Christ has done, Lord, cause that joy to well up in our hearts when we think about every bit of it is a gift of your grace. And Lord, help us to be reminded that it really is amazing grace and it really is a sweet sound that we were once wretches, but you sought us out by grace, by mercy, and by your great love with which you loved us. And so, Lord, help us to rejoice in you always, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, because our joy is found in you. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.